and go to Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And today we'll be reading in the ESV translation. We return to the Gospel of Mark, which is, as we've been hearing week after week for a couple months now, a book in the New Testament which serves as a written portrait of Jesus. Mark, our author, is a storyteller, and he's written this story, this account of Jesus' life and ministry in order to bring us into this story, not just to gain information, but so that our own stories would be transformed thereby. His aim as an author is to answer the all-important question, who is Jesus and what has he done? And as we've been advancing, this has been the most, or this is, it remains to be, it always is, (laughs) the most important question uh, we could ever ask. And it is not only the most important question that we should ask, you know, once, but in every circumstance of our lives, at all times, and in every aspect of the life that we live um, here under the sun, who Jesus is and what he's done has the potential, has the capacity to change uh, everything for us. From the mundane to the weightiest of matters that we face, who he is and what he's done transforms the lives we live. And Mark, in the gospel, he presents Jesus via story. And this morning, for us, in Mark chapter 4, Jesus, he also reveals himself via story and proves himself to be, as we'll see in this week and the weeks to come, the greatest of all storytellers. And so this Sunday, we continue on with another passage in the gospel of Mark that emphasizes the distinction that we've been seeing between insiders and outsiders. And today, we come to Mark chapter 4 and the narrative pace that we've been running at it begins to slow down. We hit pause on the movement from here to there, and we get a break from the conflicts that Christ has been embroiled in. We slow down as we read chapter 4, and we take our seats along the sea as Jesus teaches us from his floating pulpit. From chapter 4, verse 1 through 34, we, received a, we receive a sustained section of Jesus' teaching ministry. Second in length only to his discourse in chapter 13, which represents the longest sustained teaching of Jesus in the gospel of Mark. And today, this is significant for us in Mark chapter one, uh, chapter 4, verse 1 through 20, because as we have been receiving, we don't just get a summary statement of what Christ has been teaching. We actually get to hear the content of what he's teaching to the crowds. And as we'll read in our text, what he's teaching is all in parables. Parables. What's the significance of this? The meaning and the purpose of these parables? Well, we'll find out together as we read God's word in verses 1 through 20. So, without any further ado, let's read the first of the four parables we'll encounter in this chapter together, and then pray and ask for God's help as we receive the word. So, beginning in verse 1, Mark writes, again, He began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered around him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing, and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that they may indeed see, but not perceive. And may indeed hear, but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path, where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. 
And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. Thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. Join me in a prayer for God's help as we ask him to give us ears to hear his word. Lord, we thank you that in your grace you have revealed yourself to us, that you have given us your word and your spirit, that we might hear and understand and apply your very truth. We ask today, Lord, that you would reveal Christ to us, that Jesus, as you have told this story to tell us about who you are and what you've come to do, we would see that and we would understand that and we would apply it to our lives, that we would be encouraged freshly in your grace at work in and through us. And so, Lord, we ask today that by the power of your spirit, you would indeed give us ears to hear you, to hear you, uh, Lord, once again, to hear you maybe even for the very first time. Help us to hear you through your word. We ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jesus is teaching in parables. What are parables? The short definition of what a parable is that is helpful for us to latch on to as we read the rest of this chapter together in the weeks ahead is that parables are short stories taken from everyday life that illustrate spiritual truths. So very generally, they're kind of ordinary, mundane sorts of stories uh, that are easy, easy to you know, access in the mind of the hearer that point them beyond just the everyday, ordinary kind of thing. But more particularly, in Mark, parables are stories that reveal the true nature of God's kingdom and call for a proper response to that reality, to the reality that, as we read back in the beginning of the gospel in verse 14 and 15 of chapter 1, that Jesus was coming to bring the kingdom in, that it was at hand, it was brought near in and through the person of Jesus Christ. Parables are given as we uh, hear them to draw us in, to demand a response, and to disclose who Jesus is and what he has come to do. And as they are, uh, you know, kind of functioning in the text, parables convey a meaning, typically by comparison or by analogy, even by allegory sometimes, that is not a immediately evident on the surface of reading them, but uh, pushes the hearer of the parable to some kind of personal response to really wrestle with and to engage what Christ is saying uh, to us. And though the stories, as I mentioned, were, were typically simple scenes drawn from everyday life, what Jesus was getting at in these stories, it wasn't always plain to the hearers. It may not always be plain to us as we read our Bibles. And so the question is then, why did Jesus speak in parables? Why would he communicate in this way? And the short answer is to demonstrate who were the outsiders and who were the insiders of the kingdom. Because as we read in the text, to those within, God had given the secret of the kingdom. That is, he had revealed to them, to those disciples, to those who were truly following Jesus. He gave them the secret that Jesus is the king as we've been reading and learning, who welcomes those who believe into a life with him that looks like bearing their cross. So let me say that again. The secret of the kingdom summed up for us as we'll see it expressed in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, this Galilean carpenter who <laughs> is calling ordinary sinners, who is opposed by the powers that be, he is the kingdom bringer, this Jesus. And he calls all those who would not earn their way, not work their way, not deserve their way, not qualify to be a part of the kingdom, but would believe in him to enter into that kingdom life. But that kingdom life doesn't look like a victory lap. It very often looks like a death march, marked by following after the crucified king, carrying our crosses and denying ourselves. 
This is the secret of the kingdom, and this is also a, a stumbling block to those who have not yet come inside the kingdom. But God has revealed this to the disciples in his grace. And so Jesus has spoken in these parables to help demonstrate and to distinguish who's really grabbed onto this and who maybe in the crowd is more just curious, is more uncertain, is more unsure um, of who he is and what he has come to do. Those who are inside were given the secret to understand uh, the kingdom. Uh, but those who were outside, uh, these aspects of the kingdom, that it was in Jesus, received by faith, that it was accessed through a cross, these aspects uh, proved to be, as the Gospel of Mark continues on, and as we see even in our lives today, these aspects of the kingdom proved to be stumbling blocks very often to the entry of those who are outside. But to those within, this is revealed to those who are without. The teaching of Jesus came in such a way, as the parables indicate, that they heard him. They heard him talking, but they didn't really hear him. They didn't really get at the heart of what he was saying to them. And so the question is then, what separates one from the next? What separates the insider and the outsider as they hear the parable? Why would Jesus communicate in such a way as to make this distinction pronounced? And the short answer to that is that the disposition of one's heart would separate them as they are able to hear or to really hear Jesus. And we won't get into this too much today, but you can look at it this week in your study of God's word. But Christ's citation of Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, which you'll find in verse 12, and the wider context of the uh, prophet Isaiah, it demonstrates the, the, the fact that humility is necessary to hear God's words and respond appropriately. And so like Isaiah, the prophet, who was sent to a rebellious people of Israel, um, he was, Jesus, sent to a rebellious people as well in his day in Israel. And these people were comprised of certain persons and certain leaders, even as we've already seen in Mark's gospel, who had so hardened their hearts in disobedience and who had so blinded their eyes in pride that they'd rendered themselves incapable of responding to and accepting Jesus' words. And so to these proud ones who did not respond to Christ's call to repent and to believe, the point of the parable is that judgment is coming. They would hear, but not really hear, so as to not turn and repent. But to the humble who heard his word, forgiveness and new life would be given. And so, in the parable of the sower, Jesus explains for us why not all who hear him really hear him. He provides his people, he provides the insiders um, with God's own insight into the hearts of those who reject him. And he indicates the reality that, get this, not all who appear to follow Jesus are true disciples of Jesus. Many, Jesus tells us through this parable, will reject the word. Others, even, will hear it, appear to receive it, and still fall away. And so the question for us as we begin to engage this parable, speaking to those who have been given the secret, to those who are on the inside, to those who have believed and accepted the word, as you look out upon our city, as you look at our culture around us, as you look at the world today, what is your response to what you see uh, as far as how our city, our culture, our world responds to the message of Christ, to the word of the gospel? Be honest about what wells up in your heart um, as you perceive things around you, like the mocking and outright hostility. <laughs> it's pretty rampant these days um, toward the Christian faith. <laughs> there is pretty easy to see uh, an open re rejection and dismissal of God's righteous standards for human living and human flourishing. You don't have to look hard to find it around you on social media, to find it in the news cycle and the public discourse of our day. There's a pretty open mocking and rejection of, of what Christ came to pronounce. You see this, for example, in the, the vitriolic and extreme response to the reversal of Roe v. Wade. We see this in the blatant rejection that's common these days of the fact that we are God's creatures, not our own makers, who are completely dependent upon him and accountable to him for how we live our lives. We can see this in the banished and forbidden conception that we would be in need of a salvation that only God can provide. We can look out in the world 
and pretty easily find open rejection, open hostility, rampant mocking of what Christ came to pronounce as true and necessary for us to hear. But we can also look out and we can see believers potentially compromising in their convictions. We can see believers deconstructing their faith and capitulating to the culture that's around us, bending and turning in the way that maybe language is used and non-biblical concepts and ideas begin to affect the way we speak about the world around us, about the lives that we live, where non-biblical worldviews become tolerated and allowed to influence our lives more than God's word would influence the direction and the shaping of our lives, where there might be such a, uh, a drive in, in, in believers, maybe even in ourselves, to find common ground with those around us, that we begin to lose what is distinct about being the church, about being the holy people that God purchased with the blood of Christ, the one who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Titus 2, 14. Ask yourself, when you look out on the world around you, does it look like there are fewer Christians as you look out on the landscape of today? Does the seed of the gospel seem to be less fruitful in our day than maybe it has been in days past? Is the church in dire straits and is it collapsing as an effective and culturally relevant institution? Is this a sign of bad news for things to come? Even very generally, very broadly, how should we understand our culture's generally negative response to the message of Christ? This morning, the four soils, they teach us this. That as we look at all these things, don't be surprised by rejection. Be surprised by grace. Don't be surprised by rejection, but be surprised by grace. What do I mean by this? You see, the four soils, they represent four uh, types of human responses to the sowing of the seed, which is the word of God. That is the gospel message that Jesus has come to proclaim. The four soils are four types of responses to that message. And the uh, overarching point of the parable is not uh, an imperative for the hearer to, to move from being one type of soil to the next. It's not be this kind, don't be that kind. Um, but the point is that ultimately, in the final analysis, everyone is one type of soil or the next. So Jesus is in effect, he's saying to his disciples, don't be surprised when those around you respond to the gospel in these ways. Don't be surprised when you see these things. He's also showing them, his disciples, the insiders, uh, that what it looks like to reject him isn't a one-size-fits-all kind of approach. It's not a flat, one-dimensional uh, reality. But for us this morning, in his grace, just as he uh, did for his disciples back then, Jesus, he explains this parable to us. Um, he helps us who are on the inside to understand his words. And what he explains to us regarding the diverse types of soil, um, he explains to those who are on the inside, not on the outside, he's not talking to the outsiders, uh, so that we would be helped to live in and relate to a world uh, in which it can seem that the rejection of the gospel is the norm and not the exception. He's helping us to live in the world in which we live, helping us um, to live in a world where even those who claim to be Christ don't always remain as Christ. Where we even can be tempted, can we not, toward pride or toward frustration and anger even as we gaze out on the culture around us and our city before us. And may be prone to, to pat ourselves on the back in our heart of hearts for possessing the secret that they just don't. Can't they just get it? The soils, church, remind us that we should not be surprised or shaken in our faith by the various types of rejection of the gospel, but that we should always be surprised and celebrating grace where it's found in and around us. And so, with the purpose of the parables established, we'll turn to the meaning of this particular parable, and to do so, we're going to follow the simple outline Jesus has given to us, looking at one soil at a time. And so these four soils will serve as our four main points to guide the rest of our time together today. And as we engage these four soils, uh, in summary fashion, the first three remind us not to be surprised by the rejection of the gospel. And the final soil, 
serves to refresh our appreciation of God's amazing grace to us. So let's start with the first soil. Point number one, those along the path. We encounter this in verse 4 and verse 15. Let's look at these verses once again. Jesus begins the parable by saying that as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it, which he explains in verse 15 to be that when the word was sown in those particular ones along the path, Satan, represented by the birds, immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And so the seed of the word in this parable, um, in this section of the parable, it falls upon the hard-packed ground along the path, which represents the hard hearts of those who hear the gospel. And the seed does not take root at all. It has no time to, but the birds representing Satan come and immediately snatch it away. And the point here is that there are those in whom there's not going to be any kind of hospitable disposition (laughs) to receiving the word. There's an outright rejection of Jesus, um, which is spurred on by Satan's lie to those who hear that, you know, God hasn't really said that you should repent of your sin and believe in Jesus to be spared of judgment. The lie that that's nonsense, this whole Jesus thing, this whole gospel thing. You don't need Jesus to find joy in life. Your life will be better. It'll be more free. It'll be more fulfilling when you live it on your own terms. There's nothing you need saving from. To to these ones along the path, Jesus might as well be Beelzebul, like we heard last week. (laughs) He, in fact, seems to be the epitome of all that is evil, of all that is not good, of all that is oppressive and regressive. Their hearts, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, are hard. And the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who do not believe. And so for us, as insiders, as those who have been brought into the kingdom of God by the grace of God, we shouldn't be surprised when the world is hostile to the gospel. Pretty simple application there. We also shouldn't be shaken or discouraged, church, if our efforts to share the gospel aren't always as fruitful as we hope. Because even Jesus' proclamation For some folks, went in one ear and out the other. Even Jesus did not have a 100% success rate as the general call of the gospel went out to change all those who heard. Success and mission for us isn't based upon whether um, we get the right number of responses, but it's based on the fact that we're faithful to share the gospel at all. That's how we can begin to apply this. And so as a believer, don't be discouraged if it seems like people don't want Jesus. And more than that, don't be tempted, maybe, into thinking that you've missed it by trusting in Jesus because the seeming majority of those around you don't want anything to do with him. What is true is not based upon public opinion in any day, any time, any age, but what God has revealed to be true. Jesus, church, he prepares his people to hold fast to the word of truth in a world that is predisposed to reject it. That's the point of this first group in the parable. Next, we move from the hard-packed path to the rocky ground of the second soil. And this is in verses 5 through 6 and 16 through 17. The word comes to those on rocky ground. Reading the text again, Jesus continues, Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. He explains this in verse 16, and he says, these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who hear the word, and they immediately, um, he says, receive it with joy. And receiving it with joy, they do endure for a little while, but he says they have no root in themselves. And so that when tribulation and persecution arise on account of the word, on account of their allegiance and association to Christ, they fall away. They don't have roots that are deep enough to withstand that kind of pressure, that kind of trouble, that kind of uh, suffering that would come on account of being Christ. And so for these ones, um, the seed, as it were, in the picture, it kind of embeds on the top layer of the soil, right? And the in the thin dirt, um, and it appears to take root. 
but that root does not dig down deep enough. So that when the sun shines upon it, the shallow root, it withers away because it's not anchored in the ground where it would find the nutrients it would need to survive. And so in other words, these ones here, sown upon the rocky ground, they appear to receive Jesus and may even confess faith for a while. But in short, they wither away when the going gets tough. They will receive the blessing and the benefits of being identified with Jesus, but they won't endure trouble or persecution for the sake of Christ. Simply put, for these ones, Jesus is not worth the suffering. And for us, finding my note page, (laughs) we live in a culture uh, where it's no longer easy to embrace Jesus. We used to live in a culture, arguably, where it was perceived as a blessing, as a benefit to be associated with Jesus. Uh, But now for us, we live in a culture where embracing Christ is not a societal benefit anymore. And so there might be many who have received the word with joy, but then as the going begins to get tough and tougher and tougher, it is not as attractive, not as advantageous to be linked up to Christ by faith. Author and cultural analyst Aaron Wren, he provides a helpful uh, categorization of our culture's shifting attitudes uh, toward the gospel. I think this is important for us to to think as a framework. Uh, He provides three categories to help us think about this kind of thing and to understand where our culture used to be and where it is now as it concerns the general uh, regard of the Christian faith and message. He talks about this as the positive, neutral, and negative worlds. It sounds like a Marvel movie, the new Thor installment. (laughs) But first, he says there was the positive world. And this was a world that ended in the mid-90s where society had a mostly positive view of Christianity. And thus, being a member um, of a faith community brought social benefits. Christian moral norms pervaded society and were the, the norming norms of how people thought about what was true, beautiful, and good. It was a benefit to you to belong to Christ it helped you move up and forward in the culture and in the world. But then Ren continues that after the positive world came to a close, we entered into what he calls the neutral world, which he dates from the mid-90s to 2014. And he says this was when society took a neutral stance toward Christianity, neither privileging or disfavoring the faith. One could be religious, you could be a Christian, or, or not, you know, but you do you, I'll do me, and it's not a net gain or loss, we just kind of do our own thing. But Christian um, faith wasn't yet looked down upon. But then enters in the negative world, which he says goes from 2014 to the present day in which we live. And this describes the present state of society and its negative view on Christianity. In general, his uh, argument is this, that to be a traditional Christian, to believe God's word as revealed in the scriptures and to cling to it as true and to found our lives upon it is detrimental, not beneficial to your status. Christian morality is seen, in fact, as harmful, as repressive and as threatening to the public good. Our world today is a negative world. One where it would not be publicly celebrated if you were to go on social media and announce your conversion to Christ. (laughs) You probably wouldn't get a lot of uh, response and applause. But you might be applauded if you were to go out and announce your conversion, you know, as it were, to some new expression of cultural progress, to announce your new level of cultural enlightenment, or even to announce to the public your possession of a new kind of faith, right? Right? one that was deconstructed and had distanced itself from the faith in which you once believed, publicly declaring, I'm not that kind of Christian anymore. I've arrived here and now in a new and better place. That would probably be applauded. Not so much your conversion to Christ as he's presented in the word of God. And this is relevant because the world of Christ in the first century, it was a negative world in which he and disciples, his disciples were living. Though he had garnered quite a crowd up to this point in Mark, many in that crowd 
as the Gospels will tell us, they don't persevere. The opposition of the Jewish leaders, the division of embracing Jesus that would come about in families, right, from those who would follow him and those who would not follow him, and the cost of discipleship, of cross-carrying discipleship, would prove too steep for many as the ministry of Jesus progressed on to the cross. Jesus hadn't come, church, to bring about an instant positive world, (laughs) but to be killed by the negative world. And so many did not want to follow a Messiah who had placed them in such an unfavorable position (laughs) via their faith in him. They did not grasp the secret of the kingdom and behold that Jesus was worth living and even dying for. That to live was Christ and to die is indeed gain. That all things could truly be counted as lost in light of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. Philippians 3. And that to save one's life was in fact to lose it. But to lose one's life for Christ and his gospel was to save it. Ultimately, though, for some, Jesus says, Christ would not prove to be a treasure enough worth suffering for. And this is the second group. The second group would fall away through persecution. But, as we continue, the third group, they will be drawn away by the preoccupations and the pleasures of this world. And this brings us to point number three. The word sown among those among the thorns. And this is verse 7 and 18 through 19. So let's read the verses as we have been to track with this group. Verse 7 reads, Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it and yielded no grain. And explaining this, Jesus says in verse 18, And others are sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things, anything other than Christ, enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. And so there's a progression from one all the way to four. And and the first seed comes and no root is taken at all. Uh, In the second, there's a root taken, but it is not deep enough. It is too shallow, and so it withers away. In this case, we are kind of getting as far as we have gotten so far in that the seed is implanted, it germinates, it begins to take root, but it doesn't progress on to bearing fruit. The evidence of that new life implanted, the evidence of the true reception of the word, it falls short of being brought to bear because the cares of this life, the pleasures of this world, the preoccupations that are all around us choke it out and draw the one who's received the word away from following Christ. And so for these ones, the preoccupations and and pleasures of life, they shine brighter in in the eyes of those who receive the word on rocky, or excuse me, among thorns. They shine brighter than the glory of Christ. For these ones, as they turn their eyes to Jesus, contrary to what the song says, The things of this world do not grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace as revealed in the gospel. And these folks in these groups, in this group here, when faced with the anxieties of this life, the allures of this world, and and there are many, and the pursuit of personal advancement and ambition, all these things inhibit them from fruitfulness in the Christian life, from abiding long enough and far enough and deeply enough to produce the kind of fruit that evidences that they are in fact in Christ. They are preoccupied with personal affairs, be it ambition or career. Anxiety and fear, uh, which, do not, which they don't cast before Christ, is uh, dealt with and is responded to uh, by seeking deliverances, by seeking relief, by seeking refuge in other things apart from Christ. They appear to believe, but ultimately they are drawn away from Christ and drawn toward something else, in short. Something else in which they would seek deliverance, and in which they would seek security, in which they would seek fulfillment in this life. They are drawn away from Christ by the pleasures, the preoccupations, by any other thing in which they would find refuge and identity and joy and hope and peace and on and on. And so for these ones, in the final analysis, 
Jesus himself is not enough. He is not an all-sufficient savior who can deliver, sustain, and satisfy those who put their trust in him. They'll appear to believe for a time, but then the things of this world will creep in, will choke out, and they will prove their faith not to have ultimately rested firmly um, in Christ, that they had harbored another refuge, that they had had another rival God upon the throne of their heart to whom they would give their worship, to whom they would seek their satisfaction, and where they would find their security. Be it people, places, things. Be it ambition, be it career, be it a sense of um, anxiety that tends to say, I need to solve this on my own. God is not relevant here in this situation for me. Christ is out there, but <laughs> i got to deal with this myself. These ones don't progress to fruitfulness because their faith stops short of resting firmly and fully in Christ. So we come to the end of the first three soils. And we see that the good seed of the gospel, it has been scattered now uh, on going on to the fourth soil, but the first three out of four have yielded no crop. But as we turn to the fourth soil, we come to see that those who hear the word and accept it, the gain that comes from that sowing um, more than outweighs the loss of those who have turned away. Um, in other words, we are informed, we are helped to understand, we are helped to live amongst those um, who hear the word and ultimately, in one way or the other, reject it and fail to receive it. But now we turn to the good soil, to those who receive the word and evidence saving faith. And this is meant for us as, though who have, as those who have believed this is meant to refresh us. This is meant to ground us firmly, to make us confident this morning in God's grace, um, in and, and through and all around us. And so we come to the, the good soil. Verses 8 and 20. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. Christ explains this in verse 20 as the ones who hear the word, Accept it and bear fruit. Fruit that is produced in 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. The seed takes fruit and it bears gospel fruit. And here we need to understand that though it may not be on the surface of verse 8 or verse 20, this is where the gospel comes in to the situation. Because the question for us really shouldn't be, well, why is there so much bad soil, <laughs> right? Why do so many reject? But the better question is, why is there good soil at all? <laughs> why would any accept the word? And it's because God in his grace, Jesus has already said this in verse 11, has mercifully and wonderfully opened our eyes, those who have believed to see the truth of the gospel revealed in Christ, has welcomed us into the kingdom not on the basis of anything we have done or could do, but on the basis of our trust in Christ. God has made this, the soil, as Kyle said this morning, <laughs> fertile in our hearts. He has done the work to remove the heart of stone and make a heart of flesh. He has tilled the ground and made us ready to receive the gift of faith that would come as a response to his grace. And so there's good soil, not because we or anyone might make themselves good soil, but because God is gracious to those who have believed. And so Jesus says, there is good soil that God would grant the gift of, of saving faith through his grace. And they would evidence the fact that they have come to this faith by producing fruit. You see, our, our, good, our good works, right, the fruitfulness of our lives, they don't form the basis of our acceptance, right, with God. They're not the foundation of it, but they are the proof. They are the evidence that we are, in fact, his. These ones would hear the word and would evidence their place in the kingdom by the kind of life they lived resultingly, by having a faith that would be firmly rooted and grounded in Christ, persevering and proven over time as they are shifting from one degree of uh, glory to the next, one degree of conformity to Christ to the next, bearing spiritual fruit and living lives that show the transformative work of the gospel. For these ones who hear the word, who accept it and bear fruit, for these ones, for us. We've come by the grace of God to see that Jesus is all he says he is. That he is worth everything, even suffering. 
that he is a totally sufficient savior and that we need to look to no other to sustain our hope or to find our refuge. For us, God has made our hearts fertile by grace in order to receive his grace in the gospel. And if you're here this morning and you've heard all this up to this point and you're hearing me say this now and you're not sure if you're an insider or an outsider, if maybe you think you've rejected the gospel in the past, but hearing this now, you're open to the possibility that just maybe Jesus is who he said he was. If you're hearing this now, don't disqualify yourself from coming to Christ. If you're hearing this now and you're saying, yes, I do want to believe, I do want to follow Jesus, but you're worried that you're not the right soil. (laughs) If that's you this morning, the application of this parable isn't to step back and first try to determine which of the soils you are. The application of this parable is that if God has given you ears to hear him today, to repent and believe the gospel today, not to sit back and try to assess what soil am I? Have I been disqualified? Have I been discounted? If God is making your heart fertile and receptive to the word of the gospel today and you've never yet believed it, respond now and come to be assured that you belong to him. Come to be assured that you are in fact the good soil prepared and made fruitful by God in his grace apart from any works we could do or perform. But for the rest of us, three applications of this parable before we close. Number one, have compassion on other soils and so, so, so. It's kind of two in one, but it's going to be one. (laughs) But the parables are explained to insiders to help them think about outsiders. And if anything, that this should do in us, in our hearts, is that we ought to understand that those who are outside have quite a lot going on inside. That is, within their hearts, within their minds, there is, as we read, genuine spiritual warfare. There are real human fears and aspirations. There are a complex of desires bound up in each person who is hearing the gospel and who has perhaps not yet received it and believed it. It's one thing to critique, right, in the abstract, the movement's in our world, the ideologies of our culture to say this is the negative world and to have our responses and our refutations and all that sort of thing. But it's another thing to relate to an actual image bearer of God who finds themselves outside the kingdom. To those, we must extend compassion. We were once on the outside, missing Jesus. So we should not be surprised when others are on the outside, rejecting, mocking, and missing Jesus themselves. As the parable reminds us, Satan is at work in them to deceive and to oppress. So anger or mocking shouldn't be our first response to those on the outside. But instead, an appreciation of their spiritual condition should lead us toward compassionate prayer. We also understand that the the loss that's entailed in the gospel is not something that we go seeking. (laughs) We're not uh, eager to find suffering wherever it might come. Everyone is wanting to avoid that. And so we can even be understanding and patient for those who are saying, man, Counting the cost of the gospel, that's a big deal. There's a lot entailed in that. And we can patiently walk with them. Not trying to prove that they're wrong, but trying to prove that Christ is better and that he is worth it as we relate to them. There is a complex of motivations and factors within the human heart that are drawing any human person, even those who believe, though we will not be drawn away ultimately, but they're drawing folks this way and that way. Preoccupations, pleasures, and pursuits, you name it. Some of these are unrighteous. Some of these are righteous. Some are even good and worthwhile, but none but Christ are the ultimate sort of thing that ought to draw us and to drive us. And so as we relate to others, we want to prove prove to them that uh, though this might be good, this might be valuable, this might even be a worthful endeavor to pursue, nothing is worth pursuing if you have not Christ. Nothing can bring you joy, ultimately, apart from Christ. There is no good life. (laughs) There is no um, good outcome. There's no good ending to this story if there's a life lived for all the good things, even, but missing the greatest of these things in Christ. We want to appeal to those outside, to those around us, with this better news of a better thing to live and to die and to live eternally for. And all this said, Only God knows what kind of soil a person is. This is important for us to to be clear on. 
Meaning the point of the parable to those who are on the inside is not for us to sit back and try to designate everyone's category around us and then to be efficient in our evangelism by only evangelizing those who appear to be good soil. That is not the way to apply this parable. We are to be understanding of those who are on the outside and then and not be surprised by those who might even reject the gospel. But we are to still share the gospel with all indiscriminately. Just like the sower, he cast a seed on every type of soil. We are to go out and to share the gospel with anyone we might encounter, with all of our neighbors, with all of our family members, with those who God has placed us around. We don't need to worry about what kind of soil they are. That is a work of God <laughs> to till the soil of the human heart and to make them ready for his grace. We just need to be faithful to sow the seed of the gospel to those who are around us. And so, we don't try to figure out who Satan's got dialed in and say, let's not waste our time with them. We don't write off those who are wavering in their faith or experiencing temptation to wander away and say, oh, they're on the way out anyway. They're not the good soil. <laughs> no, we just continue to share the good news that Jesus is the king and that he is a willing savior of all who would repent of their sins and entrust themselves to them. We need to scatter the seed of the gospel and entrust God to do the work that only he can do. Second application. We need to, as those inside, assess our hearts for the characteristics of unfruitful soil. And so I said that already in this parable. The main point is not to say, well, we move on a sliding scale or a spectrum of bad soil to better soil. <laughs> it's not about be this soil or don't be that soil. Jesus gives no imperatives, actually, in this parable. He says, it is this or it is that. But it's helpful for us as believers, as those who, by God's grace, are good soil to assess the characteristics of these bad soils. Not out of fear that we'll become bad soil, but in order that we could be even more fruitful in our Christian life. And so questions we can ask ourselves. Do you have a, a functional category for the work of Satan affecting your life at all? Is that present in your Christian life? Even as we heard last week, though Satan will not ultimately prevail against Christ's people, do you still believe he's a lion and on the prowl and you are being vigilant to Resist him in your Christian life. Do you see in yourselves the tendencies to avoid confrontation or discomfort that would come to you on account of the word? Do you avoid being known as a Christian? Do you wish, just wish our culture would revert back to the positive world where it was easier to be a Christian and your hope is all, you know, put in that? Or do you maybe find your heart being drawn away from Jesus um, toward any kind of Jesus plus fill-in-the-blank scenario, or Jesus plus this new job, Jesus plus owning a home, Jesus plus this relationship, Jesus plus if only my marriage looked like this, whatever it might be, fill-in-the-blank of the things that are driving your heart, that are fueling your desires. Do you have any kind of Jesus plus scenarios that are welling up within you where you're saying, if only I had him, but also this, I need this too, then I would have deliverance, joy, or peace. Are you finding more joy in the things of the world than the things of God? Respond to your sermon, or to this sermon, not your sermon, <laughs> by assessing your heart. Not to maintain your status as good soil or to earn your status as good soil, but to nurture the soil of your heart and to ask the Lord to spur on the new life he's implanted in you. And finally, we should respond to the parable of the soils by celebrating God's grace in and around us. Celebrating God's grace in your salvation in your sanctification, and in the evidences of his grace in the church around you. First and foremost, celebrate God's grace in your salvation, that the secret of the kingdom has been given to you, that new life through the gospel is yours, that his grace, we would say, has come to me, that I am no longer blinded by Satan. I see Jesus as my treasure. I rest in him as a perfect savior. I am a member of God's family, a citizen in God's kingdom, a clay pot in whom he's placed the treasure of the gospel. And I get to live in his love forever. Why me? I deserve nothing, but I've received everything in Christ. God would have been perfectly just to leave me in my rebellion and to bring me into the judgment I deserved for seeking to live according to the rules of my kingdom. But he opened my eyes. He changed my heart of stone. He set me free from bondage to sin. He welcomed me into life with him. Why me? God's grace in our salvation. And even as we'll sing in response to this, 
What an amazing mystery, isn't it? That his grace has come to people like us. Second, we should respond by celebrating the evidences of God's grace that you see in yourself. Be encouraged, church, by the faithfulness of your life in Christ. This isn't boasting, this isn't arrogant, this isn't misguided. It's right to be encouraged by God's work in you. As you see him bearing the fruit of the Spirit in your life, changing your desires, and causing you to become more like Christ, celebrate these things because they evidence that you belong to God and he is at work in you. Celebrate his faithfulness. Walk in gratitude to be made more sure that you are, in fact, good soil. And finally, in the evidences of God's grace that you see in one another, like we practice in our small groups and we we carry on in our life together, celebrate God's evidences of graces in each other. As you look to those around you, as we live life together, as we're in our small groups, um, we can help one another be resting more securely in Christ, being more firmly grounded in the fact that by God's grace, they are good soil, as we help them to see the things that God is doing in them. Because we all know, very often, it can become easy to be discouraged. It can become easier to focus on what is going wrong and to see all the sin in our lives than to see the fruit of God's grace. We serve one another by pointing out the work of God in them so that they could rest more confidently in Christ, so that they could be more freed to serve him, so that they would know that God hasn't given up or forsaken or departed from them. We can help each other, church, to move from anxiety and fear, that we may not be good soil after all, to assurance and fresh faith to abide in Christ and to be all the more fruitful in him. And so in conclusion, as we live in this world and as we live together as a church, would we not be surprised by the rejection around us, but would we never cease to be surprised by in celebrating God's grace to us? Let's pray.